morning, church family. What a difference a year makes. It's a beautiful sight to see this place full on Easter Sunday after the year we've had and difficulty we've had. I want to encourage you right quick just to turn to somebody next to you, say hello. Maybe you haven't got to greet somebody. We've got a full house and maybe tell them happy Easter. He is risen, whatever you want to say. Thank y'all for that. Um, introverts, you had your time. It was 2020. It's now time for some greeting time. So glad you're here. Of course, want to take advantage of the day. There's lots going on, and next week we've got a lot. Please check out the bulletin. But uh, if you didn't get a family picture before the services, there's a little family thing that uh, uh, the Flowers family set up for us. So appreciative of them doing that. Uh, so if you want to get a family picture out there, Miranda uh, Calabrese is going to be manning that for us and uh, getting that ready. Because, parents, I want to encourage you, because you don't want this. <laughs> All right? So we don't have an Easter bunny out there for one reason. It's because this photo has, it has a subtitle to it. it, it if, if you were to hang this in an art museum, uh, the title behind, below this would say, Lifelong Therapy. Sir, or something like that. So anyway, go get your picture made out there, but we are so glad that you're here. And also, as Doug mentioned, don't forget tonight, if you haven't taken advantage of our, of our walk that's uh, set up in our, foyer, or in our fellowship hall, there's a 12-station uh, prayer time, scripture time that you can go through from 6 to 8 tonight in our fellowship hall. We'll be up here. It's just a really cool time. About 80 or 90 of us have been through it, several people from the community I want to encourage you to be part of that. So I want to pray as we get started. So if you don't mind, grab, grab a family member's hand or somebody's uh, friend's hand next to you. And uh, we get to do that now. That's kind of cool. So let's pray. God, we are thankful. We can't say it enough this morning, Father. The tomb is empty. You, you've turned everything around. There's hope. There's light. There's a chance. Second and a third and a thousandth and a ten thousandth chance. Come and find true life. God, may we not just go through the motions now. May we, once again, peek into the empty tomb and be in awe and be in wonder and again fall to our knees and open our hearts up to you. Thank you for this day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. We were told, you know, about a year ago by leaders and authorities, people in power, as they saw the pandemic unfolding, there was a couple quotes that came out. One was a saying that went something like this, everybody in America, everybody in our country will know somebody or will have somebody in their family who will be hospitalized by COVID. Then we heard even more grim predictions that each of us would know someone directly or indirectly that would pass away from COVID. 
At the time, a year ago, I, I hoped that those were not going to be predictions that came true and foolishly believed that there was no possible way that that could become true. But yeah, here we are. Here we are, still trying to make sense of the world that we're living in, still trying to make sense 12 months later of the 30 million plus people who have not only got COVID, but the, really the 500,000 plus who lost their lives. And to add to that, this has been the last 12 months, a year of hurricanes and floods and separation and difficulty and local problems and divorces and hardship and a revealing of ourselves. Loss of so much that we take for granted. The past 12 months have been not what I would say the worst of times, but they certainly haven't been the best. It's been one slow, long, strange year. It's been a slow, ever-deepening, dark path that we've slogged down, sometimes together, but often alone. And I'm told that today, and I believe that today, is about hope. Easter has a theme. And if Easter does have a theme, that theme is four letters that brighten up our day and it's hope but I want it to be clear that it better not be cheap hope I don't want anything to do with cheap hope yes there are different grades of hope hope can be wonderful and hope can be cheap hope can be momentary and hope can actually be terrifying But resurrection hope, hope that's tied to Easter, if we're going to celebrate it today, if we're going to believe in it, if we're going to turn to our neighbors and we're going to say he is risen, he is risen indeed, or we're going to say the tomb is empty, then the hope we share today better not be cheap. It better provide something more than Sunday. The empty tomb better have something to, a to say to a world starving for real hope. And it better have something to say, if we're going to talk about hope, to the hundreds of thousands of people who have lost loved ones. Cheap hope is out there. Cheap hope is something that exists only for a moment. We disguise it as optimism, and yes, there's nothing wrong with optimism, but optimism only lasts for a moment. So cheap hope is often something that is not sustainable. Cheap hope is also something that can be a knockoff version. It's Sam's Choice of Coca-Cola or Dr. Thunder, right, to your Dr. Pepper. It's not the same thing. In real terms, cheap hope is what we offer each other when we pat somebody on the back and we say, I hope you get better. Or I hope you know people are praying for you when we really mean I'm not going to move a finger. It's cheap. And cheap hope also is the kind of hope that unfortunately we sometimes teach. It's the hope for a future. 
a hope that things will get better in the sweet by and by. I was taught that hope. Told that we really don't have any hope on earth until Jesus comes back. And I would contend that that is cheap. Because if hope and the resurrection don't have anything to say about today, then what's the point? It's cheap. Cheap hope is abundant in our world. And if you want that kind of hope, you can go find it about anywhere. But today, we're going to talk about a different kind of hope. Not cheap hope, not discount hope, not momentary hope, but one that is real and lasting. We're going to call it living hope. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about this hope. Not one that's just for the future, but one that impacts right here, right now. And in light of the resurrection, I believe Paul writes these words, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He's saying, you're carrying around a hope in you that is incredible, a living hope. In your jar of clay body, in your flesh. And then he goes on to say, we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. A treasure. See, I don't believe any of us desire or want or are satisfied with cheap hope. And I want to tell you this, neither is Scripture. Scripture does not teach that hope is something to come. Scripture testifies that hope is living It gives us a beautiful picture at the height of all history, at the apex of God's plan on Easter morning 2,000 years ago when everything changed. And hope was not something to wait on. It became something that we could grasp and live. But to understand that today, I want to go back and just remind us of some things. And the first thing I want to remind us of, of two realities, the first is this. Is we're all broken people. Amen, church? I mean, we're a mess. (laughs) We're selfish. We all make inward turning decisions. We're hurtful. The line of evil does not exist out there where I want it often to be like Those are evil people and my people are good people. The line of good and evil runs through every one of us. It crisscrosses across this room. Jesus believed that. Jesus knew that the problem with the world wasn't something out there that could be fixed externally. Jesus understood that we were broken. And he did not teach that the solution to our problems was better government or better education, he taught that the problem was right here in our brokenness. 
right inside of us that humans are responsible for the brokenness in the world, that we all have turned inward, and that we all act selfishly. And that those messes that we create create other messes for other people. Can you remember, I want to ask you a question, can you remember the first time or just one of the times that you realized you were responsible for somebody else's mess or pain or hurt? That by your actions you contributed to the brokenness of our broken world. I can remember the first time I had that realization. It was in sixth grade. You guys love my middle school stories, right? <laughs> in sixth grade, I was hanging out with a friend named David, and his younger brother was with us. He was in fourth grade. His name was Jason. And David and I were reminiscing about the lost days of dodgeball and P.E., the lost days of dodgeball. We were sad that dodgeball didn't exist for sixth graders anymore. We were now had to focus on basketball during P.E. hour and track and those types of things. And that's when his little brother Jason spoke up and he goes, you guys got to play dodgeball when you were in fourth grade? And we were like, yeah. He goes, we don't get to play dodgeball. We never got to play dodgeball. The whole year we haven't got to play dodgeball. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, because Coach Kennedy said that the boys throw too hard at the girls and he canceled it. Which was odd because Jason was explaining that they had never got to play dodgeball, so how did Coach Kennedy know that the fourth grade boys threw too hard? Well, it hit me. I was responsible for this. All of a sudden it hit me. Because I was in Coach Kennedy's class in fourth grade. And we were in PE one day. And on this fateful day, there was only two people left in this dodgeball game. Me and a young lady named Casey. Casey Brown, if you're out there. <laughs> and a ball rolled to my feet, big red, you know, PE dodgeball. It was a good one, solid, had the, still had the grips on it, hurt, kind of stung, you know. It rolled to my feet, and Casey, I don't know if she was the one that threw it or not, but she found herself too close to the half-court line. That was the dividing line that you couldn't cross. And then I saw my opportunity. I was competitive at one time in my life. I know that's hard to believe. I, I was. I've since changed, and, you know, I just, everything's cool now. But I picked up that ball, and I took off running towards Casey, and she started to backpedal. I just saw it. Everything started to slow down. And with all my fourth grade strength, I threw that ball at 18, 19 miles per hour. <laughs> It was straight, it was true, and as Casey kept backing up, it smacked her right in the face. She fell backwards, landed on her elbow, and then hit a little bit of her head. It looked terrible. I can still see it in my head. I kind of was like, the next thing I noticed was Coach Kennedy blowing his whistle and yelling, that's it, Jake, your team loses, dodgeball's over. And he meant not for the day, he meant forever. <laughs> so that morning when I was talking with Jason and my buddy David, I had this realization. No more fourth grade dodgeball was my fault. 
And I was responsible for the lamenting of many fourth graders from that day forward. Now that's a silly example. But I think we can all think of ways that we've contributed to the world's brokenness. Our brokenness is embedded deep within our human heart. It's part of every one of us. I want you to think about it this way. And most of you have probably already figured out what I'm doing here. We'll keep going with it, though. I want you to imagine, and I want to be very graceful here to ourselves, that you and I are just responsible for one, or I'll just say, I'll just use me as an example, it's easier, is that I'm just responsible for one selfish thing a day. Let's be really graceful, right? So I make one mistake a day, right? Just one, right? Not a big deal. Not too big of a deal. But just think about all the people in this room. If we all, let's be graceful again, we all just make one selfish, selfish inner turning of our heart a day. Then it, there's a lot more mistakes that we can put up here, right? There's a lot more we can start to put up here. I don't know how many people are here today, two-something, 250, something like that, right? And that's just in here in Canadian. How many people are in the earth? Seven billion. So let's be super graceful to the whole earth and say that there's just one mistake all of us do that causes brokenness in the world. What's that do to the world? We start getting all this mess from our selfishness, our hurt, our gossip, our, our anger, our tempers that we lose, the way that we stay addicted, right, to all this stuff. We get all this mess going in the world. But yet, we know, right, right now, we know that it doesn't actually stop there. None of us are alone in these decisions, right? These decisions that I make, my selfish inward turning doesn't just affect me, amen? My selfish turning affects other people. So this mess that we have of people making poor decisions and all that stuff starts to do other things to so many people. So many people get in the way and get involved. And it's that father that comes home and he's angry every night. And his anger over here connects with his wife and his wife goes to the kids and then it goes back and forth, right? We all do that. And then there's corporate sins and there's all these things that we do and this whole mess begins to just go all over, right? From me to you and the world just keeps getting more selfish and we all are interconnected and we can't escape it, right? That's the world. That's the brokenness of the world. That we have a slow death that we do to ourselves. It's that co-worker who every day spends that time gossiping. It's that friend who won't be honest about what they abuse or what they're addicted to. That's the mess we create. But yet each of us is contributors. And this is the bad news of the day is that we as contributors cannot extract ourselves from that mess. 
We can't extract ourselves from it, which means this. Rick read for us the crucifixion. It means for us that we're the reason Jesus is on the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross because God was angry. Jesus went to the cross because we rebelled. And none of us is able to remove ourselves from that problem. But this mess actually carries good news with it because this mess is the reason why Jesus came. The gospel is a proclamation that the creator of the world gets personally involved in this, that he wants to get involved. He comes and he doesn't just stay away from the mess. He actually doesn't contribute to it, but he gets in it. He gets right in there and he interacts with the mess. He makes himself part of it. And then what he does with it that gives us hope is that Jesus on the cross takes the brokenness and absorbs it into himself. He absorbs it. And that's our second reality. The first reality is that we're broken, but the second true reality is that Jesus is able to absorb our mess. On the cross, he took it. All the billions of selfish moves, the billions of messes that we've made, the innumerable broken pieces of human lives, all the lies, all the murders, all the half-truths, all the addictions, all the sexual sins, the horrible things that we do to each other in the name of self. He takes it. And it kills him. This immovable thing that we can't extract ourselves from, he takes it. And he takes it to the tomb. And it buries him in the tomb. And I know that that's the bad, difficult news of this thing. But what we celebrate on Easter is that while that stone... And that mess was stuck there. But that wasn't the end of the story. Shane, if you'll get the lights for me. I know you guys can see this already, but I want to make a point. What we see in the resurrection is that what was immovable, what couldn't be undone, actually in the resurrection, Brandon, we've got one more light back here. It's on, stage light's on. There we go. Actually gets moved and becomes the centerpiece of our faith. That the stone gets moved away. That what was once sealed and said, no way, death wins. Jesus loses on Resurrection Sunday the mess, the immovable stone of the mess we've created moves. It moves. And that is where we get living hope. We see a world of the impossible. Of situations and moments in our lives where we say that can't get fixed, that can't be changed, that can't be different. And the resurrection begs us to say, if you think God can't overcome something, ask 
the stone that was in front of Jesus' tomb. It rolled away. The immovable moved. The impossible became possible. And that is what we call living hope. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took their spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man will be delivered to the hands of sinners, crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told them told this to the apostles. They did, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. It seemed impossible. That something impossible could make sense. That death didn't have the last word. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. The resurrection, church family, I want you to hear this, is God's proclamation that he has always been right. Now hear me on this. You're like, well, yeah, Jake, we know God's right. In the beginning, Genesis 1, God saw the world he created and he said, it is what? Good. He says it seven times. Did he say this? The world is a mess? No, seven times he says, it's good, it's good. And the last time he says it, he says it's tov miad. If y'all remember our word miad, tov muchness, good to the much degree. That's what that means. Seventh time he says it, it's very good. And then we make a mess of it. But the resurrection proves that God has always been right. And if you read Genesis 1 and 2, here's the thing that just is so amazing about Genesis 1. In the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, guess what's missing in creation? That is commonplace in our world. That is commonplace every day in our world. That's been very much in our face for the last year. What's missing? Death. Genesis 1 and 2, when God looks at the world and says it's good, there is no death. I believe all creation, when, they, when God spoke over it and said, this is very good, I believe all creation heard it. But you know who didn't hear it? Death. Because death was not there. Death, church family, is an intruder to the story. Death is an intruder. He doesn't belong in the story, and the resurrection kicks him out. He makes his way late into the story, Genesis 3, and we know from the resurrection he will find an early exit 
to the story of God. He and all his friends are kicked out in the resurrection. Greed and idolatry and cancer and selfishness and blood-sucking ticks and abuse and destruction and war. All those have a one-way ticket to the lake of fire. The beauty of Scripture is that it proclaims at the heart of its story that death and the mess we make is an intruder. And on Resurrection Sunday, the first one, Jesus, rose from the grave as victor over death. So church, we don't have a cheap hope. And Shane, you can get the lights now. We don't have a cheap hope. We have a living hope. Because this hope is not just for something to come. It means that I can now live without fear. Because I know that if God has done this before, he's going to do it again. He's going to roll stones away again, church family. He's going to push away coffins and he's going to raise the dead and he's going to defeat death finally, once and for all, as the intruder that he is. So we have a living hope that makes us all different. The living hope that gives us witness as a church and assurance through the Holy Spirit. We have a living hope. And I want to make that clear to you that it's not just theory and I'm not just throwing something out there. I want to tell you two stories to make that very clear that the living hope that we have is right here and right now. First story happened at Arms of Hope. Some of you have heard this story already, but we were there over spring break. And one of the nights our job was to be babysitters for the single moms. 38 single moms on campus, 60 young children, most under the age of seven. Okay? Can you imagine? Okay? If you want to, sign up for Children's Church sometime when we have a lot of kids here. Okay? (laughs) So we had three hours with these kids. And so we had this plan. Let's put together like a mini VBS and go from station to station and get these 60 kids there. So we got them there. We got them divided up by age group. We started taking them through all these stations. The stations were kind of working out. And then about an hour and a 15 minutes into the stations, everything just devolved and everything fell apart. And, and then everybody made their way from outside stations. And all of a sudden there were 60 kids plus our group in the chapel at Arms of Hope, this really nice chapel. And it was the most chaotic scene I've ever been a part of. Every kid was running around and around and around. I saw one kid sitting on Keller English's shoulders, just pulling his hair. It was crazy. It was insane. I kept finding myself in the bathroom, just taking a break, you know, like leaning on the counter in there. I got to wash my hands for 30 minutes, you know. I kept looking at my watch. Time slowed down. We were in a space-time continuum. I'd be like, surely 30 minutes has passed. Nope, minute and a half. I mean, it was crazy. But then, in the middle of all that chaos, all this mess, resurrection was happening. This baptistry up front, similar to our stage, almost looks exactly like our stage, but their baptistry sits right here. And in the chaos, we had some of the kids that were trying to climb in the baptistry. There was some kind of tepid, nasty water in there. 
And Olivia was up there, Hobson, and she was trying to get some kids down. And then a fifth grade girl walked up to her and and all that chaos, all the noise, God stepped in. And Olivia and this girl started to talk. And the girl said, I want to be baptized. I want to know what that's about. And so in the middle of this chaos, resurrection showed up. I was, I was in the bathroom. I had no idea <laughs> that was going on. But that night, as we were sharing stories, Olivia shared that, and it hit us all. God's not bothered by the chaos because he's already moved the stone. He's not bothered by what we say is, oh, this was a disaster of a night because he's already moved the stone. Second story. I won't name any names here, but there's a friend of mine who, whose life blew up one night. It completely blew up. Everything that she knew, everything that she thought, everything that she took for granted, everything that she thought was firm foundation and sure in her life, in a moment, ended. And in her grief and in her pain, she just decided to get out of town. Just got to get out of town. I don't know if you've ever been there where you just can't think. And you maybe have had loved ones where they just get this news or something just unfolds for them that they just got to get out. That's what this lady did. And she, so she drove and she drove and she drove. And on the way of driving, she, she had to pull over several times because she was just so distraught. And she was crying out to God, God, I've got to know that you are still with me. She just kept praying that prayer. God, I've got to know that you are still beside me. I still have to know that there is hope. She just kept crying that out. Well, she gets to her destination. It's late, 11.30, midnight. Nobody else is checking into the hotel. She checks into this hotel. She goes up to her room. She just want to relax. She's like, well, I'll just run a bath and I'll get in a bath and just sit in the bath and just relax for a little bit. Just try to clear my mind. Tears, she said that everybody could tell, anybody that saw her could see that she had been in a lot of, a lot of uh, pain and sorrow, tears running down her face. She gets up to her room and there's no bathtub. It's just a shower. So she goes down front desk and she asks, hey, can I switch rooms to go get to, get, to go get uh, a room with a tub. And, and the lady says, we don't have any other rooms. That's it. Sorry. So this lady goes back up. My friend goes back up. And she goes to the room. And, he, and this is true. This is true. This is what happens. She goes in there. And she's like, well, I might as well check some things out. She goes in the bathroom. And she opens the shower door. And in the little shower caddy in the corner, there's, there's a note. In her room. And it says signed or written it says i hope you enjoy your stay i have prayed over this room i've been praying that you'll have peaceful rest tonight incredible since she looked at that card for a long time finally got some rest the next morning she's getting around there's a knock on the door she opens the door up and it's the maid. And 
kind of looks at the maid. The maid looks at her, and the maid, without ever, without any other words being shared, the maid says, I prayed over you specifically yesterday. I left that card for you. Can I pray for you now? It's resurrection. Our hope is present tense. Our hope is not something out there in the future. Our hope is not cheap and our hope is not momentary. Our hope, because of the resurrection, changes everything. That's what we invite ourselves to. That's what we say. That's what we call ourselves to, to have a living hope that says the mess of the world is heavy and it's weighty and we're all responsible for it but praise be to God that the mess can be moved and when the mess moves I get to walk through this world saying yes things are dark but it doesn't have to be right another way is possible that's what we offer every week we are not up here just talking I don't get up here every week just to talk. I get up here every week because I want to proclaim that Jesus changes everything. And we offer that invitation to you. We're going to sing a song. If you need anything, we're here for you. And then we're going to commune after this song together. Let's stand up together.